Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and thank you for tuning in once again. This is show number 42 for the week of November 25th, 2007. This week, I'll once again look at the news from Walt Disney World, as well as visit the Walt Disney World rumor mill with updates on Fast Pass, Spaceship Earth, and the Wonders of Life Pavilion. In my continuing efforts to help you plan and make the most out of your Walt Disney World vacation, I want to introduce you to a new product and service that can help you do just that. John Van Meter, the owner of OwnersLocker.com, joins me to talk about his new service and how it can help you and your family on your upcoming visits. In honor of Mickey's recent 79th birthday, Jeff Pepper and I take a trip aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine to visit none other than the appropriately titled Mickey's Birthday Land in the Magic Kingdom. I'll answer more of your emails, including questions about the dining plan, holiday decorations at the resorts, the trains of Walt Disney World, and more. So as always, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. In the wake of last week's Thanksgiving holiday, there's not that much news coming out of Walt Disney World this week. However, there are two items of note that I wanted to cover. First, there are two new store openings at Walt Disney World. The first is the new Fantasia Shop that opened at Disney's Contemporary Resort. It is very well themed. I've seen some pictures sent in by some listeners, much more akin to like a long hallway with merchandise on either side as opposed to a traditional shop that has a single entrance and uh, merchandise on all four corners, all four sides. I understand it has a nice collection of theme park souvenirs as well as adult and children's clothing. Of course, there is a great selection of pins as well. If anybody's had a chance or is actually going down there and is going to be at Disney's Contemporary and actually happens to see the Fantasia store, wants to call in, I'd love for you to call the voicemail and let us know what you think. Secondly, there are some details about the upcoming Jungle Cruise movie that were unveiled this week over at Box Office Mojo, where they got a chance to interview Walt Disney Pictures chairman Dick Cook. I'll put a link up to that in the show notes, but it's interesting because what we're understanding about the movie is that not only will be there be a family involved, but that, like the real Jungle Cruise, the skipper is going to play a very important role as he takes on somewhat of an Indiana Jones-type part with, quote, a little Jack Sparrow thrown in. And yes, like in the Jungle Cruise in Walt Disney World, the family's going to be taken on an adventure that, of course, they never dreamed they were going to be on when they first got on board. It's going to be a combination of an adventure and fun-filled movie and will be produced by David Hoberman. Now, what does this mean for Walt Disney World's rumored Jungle Cruise refurb? Well, likely that it will happen, but probably not with the Lion King characters and possibly as the movie gets closer to being released. Now, what I'm wondering myself is if the introduction of some type of heroic main skipper character will affect the sets and props in the attraction 
and possibly even the legendary Jungle Cruise skipper Spiel. So we obviously won't know more until it gets closer and until any sort of official news from Disney comes out about the Jungle Cruise going down. But as long as we're talking about rumors, let's go right into the Walt Disney World rumor mill for this week. I spoke some time ago about the rumors that were beginning to swirl due to Disney's filing for a number of patents with regard to the FastPass system. I discussed the possibility of the patents being filed simply to protect Disney's concept and technologies and that they would, would probably not be immediately implemented, and possibly not even as they had been rumored elsewhere, where guests were staying in pricier Disney hotels might get priority over other guests, etc. Well, it seems that more details may be emerging unofficially, and I should be clear, these are unofficial rumors that I'm talking about, about the patents and the system itself. Listener Ray Harkness from the Grumpy's Hollow blog wrote to me this week with some more information. He said that he felt he needed to email me after hearing the particular rumor back in show number 37, and he wanted me to reassure listeners that the patents in regards to new technology was just filed for protective purposes. While he was there in September, he met someone on a water taxi from Disney's IT department who allegedly had been there for more than 15 years. He worked in the new technology implementation division, and Ray found out that one of his implementations was that every version of FastPass system that had ever been rolled out domestically and abroad. So Ray goes on to say, I didn't want to bring it up, but my wife did for me. She asked about the patents. He told us that they're definitely doing something new with the FastPass system that involves perks for people based on the resorts that they're staying at. But they're trying to figure out how not to punish those who are trying to get the FastPasses in the parks. He also brought up the people staying off property and said that there are plans in the works to devise something special for off-site guests as well. He said that there are many, many ideas being worked on and some are in development for testing. He punctuated his remarks by saying that the accountants and the powers that be always have final say on what gets put into action, so it basically could go in any direction. He specifically was saying that it could, and has in the past, gone in the direction of worse for the park guest but he's getting a feeling with the new administration that it won't be this way. One thing that he said they were working on was a way to randomly deliver a fast pass to another popular attraction along with the one you intended on getting. So, for example, you may get a magical moment from the fast pass system. So you might go to Space Mountain to get a fast pass, and when it prints out, it may spit out another one for maybe Splash Mountain that's good right now. So you can hop on something now while you wait for your Space Mountain time to arrive. Ray goes on to say that it's very interesting, but again, these are not official. Nothing is official from Disney about this. I'm not sure what may come in the future, but I would expect that Disney will likely experiment with a number of different machinations of the system before they implement anything on a more permanent basis. And obviously, Disney is very receptive to guest reactions. So depending on what they do try and test out, I'm sure that you will be, uh, Disney will definitely be listening to what guest response would be. Rumors are also beginning to float around about a new narrator for Spaceship Earth, that's not Patrick Stewart. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was working on a rumor but wanted more information because at the time, all I had heard was that Spaceship Earth would be getting a new narrator, but it would likely be female. Well, rumors being mentioned elsewhere online indicate that that very well might be the case, as the name that's being thrown around is that of Dame Judi Dench. Now, you may know her as M from the James Bond films. You may also know her as the Academy Award winner for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Elizabeth I in Shakespeare in Love. Other appearances include Notes from a Scandal, and she was also the voice of Calloway in Disney's Home on the Range. Now, this was also confirmed by another listener who asked me to have him refer to him only as the Disney Nut. 
He recently attended a speech by Jack Blitch, who's the vice president of Disney Imagineering for Attractions Development, who confirmed that this and other these other rumors are going to be true. First, Spaceship Earth is going to reopen on December 4th, 2007 as a soft opening. Now, this goes against what Disney has online for a February opening date. I did say I did hear from a friend in Imagineering who said Disney was working around the clock to try and get this attraction open in time for the holiday season, as well as an upcoming major event in January. I am going to try and confirm this report from elsewhere. But again, this did come directly from this vice president of Disney Imagineering. So it's obvious that Disney does want to try and get this open in time for the Christmas season. Other details about Spaceship Earth is that the ascending portion of the ride, where you go through Rome, Greece, etc., are not going to be changed, only refurbished and cleaned up a little bit. However, the descent version of the attraction, where you look forward to communication, etc., is going to be changed a great deal, and that's where you're going to see the introduction of all these new scenes and technologies. Obviously, as we get closer, I'm going to try and find out more information, not only about the soft opening date to confirm it, but other things that we might see in the attraction as well. Finally, staying over in Epcot, the Wonders of Life Pavilion may actually be coming down in late 2008, according to some rumors. Now, what this also seems to hint at to me is that there will be something new coming to that location. Why? Well, Disney still uses this venue for corporate events and parties, such as food and wine, as we saw uh, very recently, as well as other private parties. So there would be no reason to demolish the structure and thus eliminate a source of revenue unless something else was to take its place. Now, one would assume that another new corporate sponsor has already stepped up to the plate and partnered with Disney, and we'll obviously have to keep our eyes and ears open for more details as they emerge. Of course, if you hear any rumors that you want to share, please send them to lou at wdwradio.com. And if you want to discuss any of the rumors that we talked about on this week's show, head on over to the show notes page for a link to the discussion forums where you can log on for free and talk with other listeners about the rumors, news, or anything else you hear on this, this week's show. With MouseFest coming up just a couple of weeks away, I wanted to remind you about not only the MouseFest schedule, but the official DisneyWorldTrivia.com and WDW Radio Show meets that we're going to be holding. The land portion of MouseFest runs this year from Thursday, December 6th through Monday, December 10th, 2007. There's designated park days for each of those days. You can check those out on the official MouseFest.org website. But I'm going to be hosting four meets this year, and the first is the second annual PodFest. And that's going to be a gathering of all of your favorite Disney podcasters where you can get a chance to meet some of the hosts, introduce yourself to some of the other shows as well as all of us. Hosts can kind of get a chance to meet one another. That's going to be Friday, December 7th. That's from 3 to 4 p.m. over at the Disney MGM Studios. It's going to be over at the Backlot Express Restaurant. You don't need to RSVP. You could just show up early, late. Feel free to come by and just say hello. The second meet is going to be after the Mega Mouse meet on Saturday, December 8th. That's going to be over at Epcot in World Showcase by the Tory Gate in Japan at 8 p.m. It's called the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Family Reunion, and we're just going to kind of get together. You don't need to be a member of DisneyWorldTrivia.com's forums. You don't even have to even have visited DisneyWorldTrivia.com. If you want to just come by, make or meet some new friends, and enjoy Illuminations again, that's 8 o'clock on Saturday night by the Tory Gate in Japan. 
Sunday, December 9th, Jeff and I are going to host the first of a new type of meet. We're going to do a live DSI Disney scene investigation. We're going to do our DSI of Frontierland. We're going to meet at 11 o'clock by the Liberty Tree over in Liberty Square in the Magic Kingdom. And that's going to go from about 11 to 12 p.m. We're going to really take you through Frontierland like a regular DSI we do on the show. We're going to point out some of the details and hidden treasures and trivia and possibly meet up afterwards for lunch over in another place where we had a DSI. That's Pecos Bill's Cafe. Again, this is open to all MouseFest attendees. You don't need to RSVP. Just show up at or around 11 o'clock by the Liberty Tree in Frontierland. And finally, I'm also going to do my annual Trivia Fest meet in the Magic Kingdom right after the DSI. Got a busy day planned from 1 to 2 p.m. That's over at the Tomorrowland Terrace Noodle Station, again, in the Magic Kingdom. This is going to be a fun, interactive game where we're going to do a a trivia-style contest. Again, it's open to everybody, kids, adults, and we're going to give away some prizes, including an Apple iPod to the grand prize winner. So, again, that's 1 to 2, uh, Sunday, December 9th, over at the Magic Kingdom. Even if you don't want to play, come by, watch, just say hello. So if you're going to be down for Mouse Fest and you're a listener to the show, I'd love for you to come by and say hello and meet you. Again, if you want to find out more information about our events, you can visit the official Mouse Fest page at uh, mousefest.org, or I'll put a link up in the show notes to find out more information about my specific meets over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com slash MouseFest2007. Again, that link is going to be in this week's show notes. Hope to see you there. So much of what I try and do on the show is centered around trying to enhance your vacation in a lot of different ways. And oftentimes, I want to try and help you appreciate some of the smaller details and finer points to get the most out of your Walt Disney World trip. But I also want to help you with the practical aspects of your trip planning and experience in the parks and at the resorts. And that includes everything from doing reviews to answering emails and sharing tips and having special guests come on. It also involves helping you find products and services that are going to help you get the most out of every dollar that you spend and make your trip easier and much more enjoyable. So I recently came across something that I think accomplishes both of these goals. And so what I want to do is introduce you to something that I think is a fascinating idea, the owner's locker. And to help me talk about this and what it is and how it's going to be beneficial to you, I want to welcome John Van Meter, owner of Owner's Locker, to the WDW Radio Show. John, welcome. Hey, Lou, thanks very much. I've enjoyed listening to your show. And let me tell you, it's an honor to be here talking with you. Thank you. And I appreciate you coming on because I think you, so much better than I can, can describe um, what this is and how it can help. So let's start with the very basics and tell us exactly what, what is an owner's locker. Well, Lou, it's a container that we provide to our members. And they put all of their personal items, their vacation gear, the stuff they want to have with them when they're visiting Walt Disney World in the container. They uh, leave it at the resort when they check out. We pick it up. We put it in the climate control warehouse until they tell us they're coming back. And when they return, we have it waiting for them at the front desk of the resort so they don't have to pack and carry as much stuff. All of the things they like to have here are already here. And that's, like I said, I think the idea 
is fascinating and something that I've never heard of before because for somebody like me that travels down to Walt Disney World a lot, the ability to have a lot of the things that I use all the time there waiting for me and delivered to me wherever I am is just brilliant. Uh, where, where did the idea come from? Were you a frequent Disney visitor or... Well, I was. I, I, I was a, a member of, or I've been a member of Disney Vacation Club since 1992. Uh, and although I'm from Kentucky, my family lived in, in England for about 15 years, and we would come back and forth with four daughters to Disney World, staying at Old Key West, really sometimes two, three, four, five times a year. And hauling that amount of stuff back and forth really got to be a chore. So I started looking for a way that I could keep some stuff here and ask a pal of mine if he would keep a box of stuff in his, his garage for me. Uh, and, 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 he, and he did, and it became so handy that I wound up sort of testing the process on an informal basis for a few years, and it became so handy, I thought, you know, this could be a business. So that's where it came from. And, and how long has the owner's locker been around? The, the idea has been around, Lou, for probably, oh gosh, between five and ten years. The business itself formally launched uh, in May of this year after a, uh, what we called a beta trial where we used 100 volunteers to test the service to make sure absolutely everything worked properly. So we're, we're, we're pretty much brand new. Yeah, I, 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 know the, I understand the concept of it, there's a long time between putting pen to napkin at the diner to actually coming up with a final product. Um, and it's great that you, you beta tested it the way that you did. But what, you know, what kind of visitor really is... is going to benefit from using it? Is just the person like a DVC member like you that's going to come down all the time and just needs to keep things there? Or what about the person that just comes maybe once a year or once every couple of years? Well, we designed the service so that someone who comes once a year could benefit from it. And we've got one family who's beta testing that just comes down every every other year. And we really don't know um, exactly whether that's going to make sense for them or not. But we've got quite a few people who come down just just once a year. And, of course, there are the, the, the folks who come down several times a year. And let me tell you, they're not just Vacation Club. There's an awful lot of folks who come down to uh, Walt Disney World, Lou, four or five times a year and, and enjoy staying in, in the same hotel or, or different hotels. It's really folks who don't want to hassle with carrying all the stuff back and forth and I think more importantly, people that view this as kind of a home away from home, whether that's at a vacation club resort or at one of the hotels, and they like to have some familiar things around them. Right, and, and you know, the locker is, for all intents and purposes, your locker. So you, when you said home away from home, that's exactly what I thought, because your name is on it, and it's yours. But let, let's talk about the locker itself. Uh, you know, what does it look like? How big is it? What's inside of it? And, and what kind of things can people actually put in there? Well, the, the goal of the locker was to have it big enough to hold the stuff that a family would have and yet not be too big to carry so that you wouldn't have to have a bell services carried around for you. It's about 22 inches long, 20 inches wide, and about 13 inches tall. Um, and let me tell you, when that gets full of, of, of a lot of stuff, whether it's, it's bottles of things, of shampoo or champagne or, 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 or whatever, it can be pretty darn heavy. Uh, but it will hold um, a lot. In fact, uh, it, it's, we hear an awful lot of, gee, this thing was a lot bigger than I thought. And, and folks have the experience of when they open it up of, ooh, gee, I didn't know that it was going to be this big. Let's run to the store and buy some things that we could, <laughs> that we could keep here. 
Yeah, I know I've used it for a number of different things from my first trip down and just kind of keeping toiletry stuff to, you know, putting books. And like I said, it can get heavy. You know, tell my wife. I make her bring it back and forth to the car. But um, it, it's great. <laughs> you don't realize how deep it is. And the other thing that's great about it is it's not just like a one of these buckets that you can go and buy at Target. You actually have dividers in there and the organ, uh, the organizer tray as well. Well, we do. And, and it it's when we started working on the locker, we knew that it couldn't be the type of stuff that you could go to to a discount store and, and, and buy. It had to be a very substantial locker because what happens if it gets dropped or, or something like that? So it's it's very, very sturdy. And as you say, it's, it's yours to keep forever. It's guaranteed for life. And my experience in traveling back and forth was if you put some bottles in there, they would tend to kind of uh, fall over. So I came up with the, the idea of putting dividers in, which will keep things standing up. Um, and also, you can kind of create little spaces for things. Like if you want to put one of these Brita water pitchers in, you can using the dividers, you can you can create a space for it when you so that when you take it out, uh, everything else doesn't rush to fill it up. The, my other experience was that you you have an awful lot of little things, and you you slowly build up a pharmacy uh, of 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 pills and things for the kids and cough syrups and things. But there's little things like. Uh, Q-tips and batteries and razor blades and things that I was forever rooting around in the in the bottom of of our what turned out to be a test locker looking for things. So that's why we came up with the and I would eventually just empty it out on the floor to try to find a pair of scissors. <laughs> we put a little lidded tray in, as you described, to keep the small things uh, apart from everything else and to where they're they're real handy and easy to find. And that's one of the things that I think I found most beneficial because it's like a little tackle box. And like you said, you put in, you know, little pills and stuff like that, and, you know, contact lenses, whatever, stuff that I don't have to worry about schlepping back and forth and that otherwise would either get lost or kind of just mixed up in the shuffle. And the dividers that you said aren't static. It, it's really, really configurable. So, for example, if I have stacks of books or whatever I want to keep in there, I can allot as much or as little space as I need to and then just, you know, pile up as I need to from there. You're you're right, and and I didn't quite realize this at the time, but it those those dividers create these little compartments that allow you to put so much more stuff in there. I mean, you can really load one of these babies up, and people do. Let me tell you. And, you know, and we're going to talk more about the process and actually getting a locker. But say, for example, I fill up my locker because I'm coming down so often, and there's so much more I want to keep in there. Can I actually get more than one, or am I only limited to having one locker per person or per family? No, 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 no. You can you can certainly have more than one, and I'm and I must say I'm a little bit surprised and pleasantly, of course, that uh, a number of our members do have more than than one locker. Um, uh, I've been completely amazed at the types of things that people like to 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 keep here. There are a lot of folks who want to have a a certain pillow that they use or an air purifier. Um, some folks like to have game consoles and printers for their computers. We have a number of computers that are that are that are stored in them. Um, so you can certainly have more than than one locker. We uh, other folks like to have one for like for the winter and one for the summer. An adults locker, a locker for the kids. And of course, we're work- the, the locker that we've got now is sort of our base product. We're working on additional lockers in the future. One for golf clubs and. Uh, and, and tennis rackets and, and my favorite, which I wanted to get out this year, but it wasn't quite perfect, so we're going to wait till next year, a Christmas locker. Oh, it's a great idea. That's a great idea. I mean, cause that's the thing. That's the beauty of the locker, and I'm going to talk more about my experience later. I, I can do it now, really, because my concern before getting a locker was, what am I going to do with it? You know, what am I going to put in this locker? And the more times I come down, 
the more times I'm realizing, well, I don't need to keep transporting this back and forth. I can leave, you know, full bottles of, of you know, uh, shampoo or, or soap or whatever it is, or my ponchos or water wings and masks for the kids. And, and the locker, the stuff in the locker keeps growing more and more while my suitcase, fortunately, is getting lighter and lighter as I'm traveling back and forth. I don't have to worry about packing and remember all these things um, as I'm traveling. Well, you know, Lou, you've, you've, you've hit our, our major education issue right on the head. And, and that is uh, people have been coming to Walt Disney World for quite some time without us, and they've gotten along just fine. They know how to do it. They know how to pack. They know what they, what they can have. They know what they, what they have to do without. And a lot of people, when they look at owner's locker, think, well, you know, geez, I've gotten along this far without that. Uh, I'm not sure that I need it now. But as you say, once you've got it and you start using it, uh, it's, it's little things like with, uh, uh, with my daughters, having the right brand of shampoo mm-hmm. in the right size bottle in the shower really makes a big difference to them. It makes them feel more at home. I mean, they don't run out and say, oh, gee, Dad, I feel more at home because I've got this bottle of shampoo. But it's things like that that you would never really think about packing. Can you imagine a big bottle of shampoo coming apart in your luggage? Um, that, that once you start using the locker, you start thinking about your time at Walt Disney World in a different way. Uh, as a bit more of a home away from home, that you can really have some of those things that you've never really thought about having in the first place. Right, so for me, when I first got my locker, I said, okay, this is going to be for me when I'm coming down solo. And I always, I'm usually just here for a few days at a time, and I, and I just want to do a carry-on bag. I don't want to waste time at the airport checking bags and then waiting for my luggage at Orlando Airport. And unfortunately, with the state of affairs the way they are, I can't bring down full bottles of shampoo. I can't bring down a full bottle of contact lens solution, all these different things. So invariably, I'd come down and my first stop would be Walgreens. And I'd spend $40, $50 buying the things that I knew that I was going to need. And four days later, as I'm getting ready to go home, I was throwing them away. You know, a bottle of shampoo that was just, you know, a quarter, not even a quarter of it was used or soap or all these different things that I couldn't bring back now are instantly in the locker. And then when my family started to come down, my focus changed because now, you know, when my kids are young, I don't have to worry about going out and buying baby food. I can keep jars of baby food in there. I can keep diapers in there. I can keep swimmies in there. And the list just goes on and on and your your mind starts going. And now I'm not making those trips to Walgreens anymore and saving all the money, uh, you know, that I was spending every trip down. But you know, you're exactly right. I mean, and I used to, I, I used to call it the target run. I mean, we would come in from, from the airport and, the, you know, the first two or three hours is, off, is out spending a ridiculous amount of money for stuff that, uh, that you may or may not need. And then you're always faced with the issue if you're trying to pack, you either don't want it in your luggage or there's, or there's, there's no room for it. But so many people, Lou, are so used to blocking out that amount of time to go get those things and knowing that they're going to throw it away and they leave it for the people cleaning the room and everything that they, they just think, oh, well, that's, that's just the way it is. But once you realize that you don't have to make that run, that all your stuff is, is, is already there, let me tell you, it's a, it's a nice, nice convenience. You saved me about $8,000 in Disney ponchos alone because <laughs> I, what I used to do is I'd forget the ponchos at home. I'd come down, you get caught in that, you know, 15-minute rainstorm. And of course, with kids now, you got to get everybody one of the Disney ponchos. It's over. Then you then you leave it there or you bring it home. I have a stack of ponchos under my bed. Now I go to the dollar store. I grab some ponchos. They're in the locker. I don't have to worry about remembering to take them with me. When I'm done, I fold them up. I put them back in the locker. 
You know what? Uh, people ask me a lot what's in lockers, and I and we never open lockers, so I don't know. Although people people do tell us what they put in them, but I can pretty much guarantee you that nine out of ten, if not ten out of ten, lockers have Disney ponchos in them. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I think we've all been through that one, and unfortunately, they they just, they just don't look quite right if you're if you're wandering around home or in a shopping mall parking lot wearing a Disney poncho. You know exactly, exactly. But let's talk about the process of. Say you've signed up now for for owner's locker. Your 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 interest is peaked, and you want to get a locker. How does it actually work? I'm coming down, you know, on such and such a day um, for a trip to Disney World with my family. How do I go about? Do I have to pick up my locker? Do you deliver the locker? Explain how that works. Sure. Well, the the key to this is convenience, and. Um, our members really don't need to see exactly how all of the process works. They just need to get to the resort and have their locker waiting for them. But we've gone through considerable time and, 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 and expense over the last four or five years designing systems all based on barcodes and our website where if you're coming to uh, Walt Disney World, you, you, you make whatever reservations that, that, that you need to make at your, at your hotel, you go onto our site, you schedule a visit, and our system automatically uh, remembers where you're coming, when you're coming, and tells us exactly which locker to have there waiting for you. So when you sign up for our service, uh, one, you won't be billed until, until your first visit. So even if you're coming down next year, you can, you can sign up today. Uh, you can schedule as many visits as you want. And that's sort of it. Um, when you come down for your first visit, there will be an empty locker waiting for you at the, at the resort when you check in. You fill it with with all of your stuff. You don't have to call us. You've already told us uh, when you scheduled your visit when to pick it up. Uh, we come by and we pick it up, put it in the warehouse, and wait for you to tell us that you're coming back. It's really pretty simple. So I have a, that leads me actually to a couple of questions. So I go online, and number one, I have all my stuff in my locker, and I need all the stuff that's there. What kind of, of safeguards or what kind of processes do you have in place so that I know it's going to be there? So I don't show up at my resort and... You know, my kids have no underwear because my locker's not there. Um, is there any sort of kind of a something that's going to kind of give me that comfort level of reliability? Well, we know that we're working with people's vacations, and we can't mess up. Every locker has got to be delivered, you know, on time, so uh, and to the right place. So we have a a, a series of of emails and notifications that go out to people when you tell us that you're going to be uh, visiting Walt Disney World on December 15th for example our system will tell you on December 1st two weeks before you're supposed to arrive I'm ready to go to uh, Disney's uh, Polynesian Resort are you go online look at your online inventory so you, it will help you in your in your packing and then about three days before you're, you're supposed to be leaving, you'll get another email saying that your locker is in the staging area ready, ready to be uh, delivered. And then the thing I really like is that when the locker gets its last scan from our, from our system, because we all work on barcodes, when it's delivered to your resort, there's a text message that's sent to your email, or a, I'm sorry, a text message that's sent to your phone that tells you that your locker has been delivered to the, to the right resort. And that's what I have to tell you, from my experience, that was what I was most impressed about. Getting the email saying, okay, your locker's been ordered was great. But when I got off the plane in Florida and I got a text message saying, your locker's been delivered to Caribbean Beach Resort, I said, wow, that's pretty, that, that is impressive. And now I don't have that, that worry. And the other thing that, that too, and, and I know this was probably the exception more than the norm was 
While I was waiting for my bags on my last trip, I got a phone call from Brian from your office who said, listen, your locker's been delivered, but I noticed that when Bell Services was taking it away, it fell off the cart. And I'm calling <laughs> you to let you know because in case something's in there or in case something's broken, like your, like my Fabergé egg collection that I keep in my <laughs> owner's locker, let us know and we'll do what we have to do to make it right. If a bottle leaked over things, tell us. And I really thought that was great. Not waiting for me to have to call you to say, hey, what happened to my locker? There's a problem. You took the initiative to have somebody called me. And being in the service industry and knowing how important Disney vacations are to people, that, that is something that I thought was um, it, the kind of exceptional service that you expect on a Disney vacation. Well, we're not in this for the short run. Uh, we want to have customers for the long, long-term, long Lou, and, and, and you're really kind to pass on the the, uh, the compliments to, to Brian, my business partner. He's, he's absolutely fantastic. Brian was a, was a Disney employee. In fact, he, he was a salesman or a guide for Disney Vacation Club, and he sold me my interest back in 1992, um, which is how we met, and, and we've been friends ever since. We both know that um, we had better get it right. Uh, and if we don't get it right, we better fix it, or we're not going to be in business. And that's our that's our hallmark. It's always us that you're that you're talking with. And in some ways, I tell people I like problems because it lets if it's happening on on one occasion, it may happen again. And it's it's great to know how you're going to handle something like that, so that you know how to deal with it when it comes up again. So. Tell us now what happens at the unfortunate end of our trip. When it's time to go home, you say that you don't look in the lockers. You say that the lockers are secure. Tell us what we as a guest do before we leave, how you get the lockers back, uh, and maybe a little bit too about, you know, where is it stored? Is it a climate-controlled place? What's security like? Things like that. Sure. Well, when you schedule your visit, you tell us what your arrival resort is, what your arrival date is, and then you also tell us your departure date and your departure resort, because we have discovered a lot of people move around once they're here. They start off at one hotel and they wind up at, a, at another one, and that's no, no, no problem at all. And we also know that people change their plans. Wait lists come through, and so at the last minute, they're, they're not going to be in the Polynesian, they're going to be in Caribbean Beach, or they're going to be in Port Orleans, French Quarter, and you can change your reservations. Uh, really, any time, even after you're here, if you want, if you're going a day earlier, if you're staying a day later, you know we don't mind. The system is will, can really handle anything that a you, lot of that, time that you a throw result. at it. But we will will pick your locker up when you have told us that you're going to be leaving, and that the system works the same in reverse as when we delivered the locker. If you get the locker to Bell Services, you have them pick it up, or you take it down to Bell Services. They know us at this point. And they usually put them in a, in, a, in, a, in a certain area. We come around the day you check out, pick your locker up in the van, get it over to the warehouse, scan it, uh, put it, bu- put it back into uh, a, a location in the warehouse. You get an email confirming that your locker has been picked up, made it safely back to the to the warehouse, and then we wait until we hear from you again. The warehouse has got to be secure. Uh, it's climate controlled. Uh, you know, very comfortable on the on the inside. We've had several people who've tested us by putting chocolate in their <laughs> locker and, and have confirmed that gee, it must be climate control because my chocolate didn't melt. But it's also very secure. We've got a we've got a fire suppression system. We've got a security system. We've got you know lots of locks and um, you know are, are prepared for about anything that can happen in Florida. What about the individual security of the locker, like? Do, I, do people have to bring their own lockers? Explain how 
uh, we lock the lockers and and how you even if we call you and say hey did I leave such and such in there you guys can't get into these lockers well that's we have a policy of, of, of not getting in lockers we we have an online inventory and we give you some inventory sheets that you can that you can fill out manually if you don't have a laptop with you and then you can go back to your computer when you get home and and put a list of things in there because one of the things I discovered was you forget what's in your locker and you're about ready to come down and say, gee do I have shaving cream in there <laughs> do I have did I have the, the park maps here or are they there uh, you know where's that Walt Disney World trivia book oh that's in my locker um, so we've 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 got that list so people can know what is in their locker, but we can't get access to that list because we view that as a very personal and 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 and, and private thing. The lockers have a lid that fits very tightly, Lou, and we provide numbered seals that you seal your locker with. And if you want, you can jot down the number to make sure that the same numbered seal is on it when it comes back to you. Now, some folks do like to put a lock on it, and the lockers are lockable. Uh, you can buy a, a padlock uh, and, and, and put it on the locker if you, if, if you want. We've thought about including locks. Some people want them, some people don't. So we've gone with just a, a numbered breakable seal so you don't have to have a, a, a knife to get into uh, to your locker for security. Yeah, and that's and you talked. You made reference to the site and being able to keep an inventory, and that's one of the things that I was really most impressed about. It was how simple the site was to use, and how I could go back and say, you know, what do I have? I, I was e- very easily able to change my reservation as needed be. And like you said, if you're checking into one resort and checking out of one resort, uh, another resort, that's not an issue. Um, it, it's very, very flexible. No, it is very flexible, and 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 I've and I've got to tell you, you said something earlier about about starting up a business and how you start off with 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 napkins in the back of envelopes and things. If there's anything that we've worked on, it's making this business very 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 easy and simple for our members. But let me tell you, it is so darn complicated uh, behind the, the the website and our and our warehouse management system that it isn't funny. That, believe it or not, Lou, is our fifth website. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, I'm going through a redevelopment of website. I, I, I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the web developer that we've had has come up with a very, very easy-to-use site, and I'm, I'm just as proud of it as we can be. Yeah, excellent. And like I said, the most important thing is that the whole process is very, very simple for us, the end user. But talk about a little bit of the cost. You know, is there a fee each time I pick it up or every time I drop it off? Is does does the weight make a difference? You know, if I have a locker that's a hundred pounds, does it cost me more than one that's you know ten pounds? Or is the length of stay you know factor in? No, the the the, the weight has nothing to do with it. We've we, we've uh, said that you can put as much as you want into your locker. If that doesn't, we'll leave that to the airlines to start charging you extra <laughs> for uh, uh, how much you you uh, you put in your luggage. These lockers are very very sturdy. You can load them with bricks if you want to, and I think we've had a couple of people who've done that by the way of their lockers. We don't weigh them. We really we we really don't uh, don't need to. But here's the way the pricing works. There is a a one time membership fee of $75 and that gets you the locker with the dividers and the lidded tray or tackle box that we were discussing it includes um, your initial visit so for this for the membership fee we del- deliver the empty locker to your resort uh, for your first visit and after you leave we pick the locker up with all of your personal stuff in it and bring it back to the warehouse that's all included in that one-time membership fee once it hits the warehouse we keep track of that date. That's your anniversary date. 
and then um, storing it is $99 a year, and that includes one visit per year. And if you're going to come down more than once, additional visits are $25 each. Well, what I did was when I first got my locker was I tried to calculate how much I was spending on either overpacking my bag or shipping things back and forth, especially when I come down for shows like Mouse Fest or NFFC or, or a book signing, whatever, as well as all the trips to Walgreens and Target or the last minute things I'd have to buy in the stores or in like the Disney sort of grocery stores. Uh, and without question, I immediately saved exactly what that cost, that $99 cost would be by having the owner's locker there, especially, like I said, on, on shipping costs of things back and forth. And that's why I was asking specifically about the weight of um, of the lockers themselves. Well, and that's that's really a key factor, and you're and you're and you're hitting on a very good point. And that is with with the locker, you store things that you wouldn't pack, and you store things that you wouldn't ship because they're too heavy or they're too bulky. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're staying here for a long time and you want to do some some laundry, um, and you're just here for you know uh, a week or two weeks, you're not going to go buy a very large bottle of uh, of, of, of detergent. You're certainly not going to ship one down because they, they weigh a ton. If you've got a locker, though, you you will buy that because you know that it will be there for the next trip and the next trip and the next trip. One of these water filters is another example. I don't think anybody is going to pack one of those things because they're so darn big or is going to ship one because they're they're bulky. But if you've got a locker where you can keep one, you can save tons of money not buying all these bottles of, of, of bottled water. You just filter your water and, and, and refill the bottles. Absolutely. And the thing about the lockers and something that I saw on your website, too, is everybody uses the locker differently, whether you're a family, whether an individual, whether a DVC member, the, the options really you start learning about once you get down there and seeing how beneficial it is for you. But I, I have to admit, John, that when I first saw the product and first heard about it, like I said, I, I thought it was a brilliant idea, but I, I was very skeptical as to whether or not it would be useful for me. And I had no idea what I would put into it. But like I said, when I saw it, I was hooked, and now I can't imagine not having one. But if somebody's interested and they're saying, okay, you know, I think I do think this is a good idea, but they're not sure that they want to commit, or is there any way that people can try the locker out without maybe having to commit to, you know, a year-long, um, you know, relationship? Oh, absolutely. We're very, very confident in, in, in the product. And also, we it may not be for everyone. Um, and the last thing we want is, is somebody tied into an arrangement that they're, that they're not happy with. So we have a risk-free trial, Lou, where you, you sign up, you try it, and if for any reason whatsoever you don't like it within the, within the first year, um, we don't ask any questions. We just give every penny back that we that we've charged you. We collect an empty locker from you when you when you when you check out and you're and, and you're done. Excellent. Hey, quick question. Speaking of checking out, is there any kind of problem like with the Disney hotels? Like, does Disney have any issue? And actually, it leads me to another question: Do you only deliver to Disney hotels? Do you deliver to downtown Disney hotels? Do you deliver to you know uh, vacation homes and things like that as well? We deliver to over 200 resorts in the attractions area. So it's not just the, the, the Disney hotels. It's really any hotel within about 10 miles of the, of, of the Disney property. And on our sign-up, or not on our sign-up, but our schedule a visit function on the website, if you don't see your resort, we, we allow you to check other and then write some notes to us. 
and some people do come down and want to stay in a, in a vacation home and, and at this point we just make arrangements with them uh, to meet someplace where we can drop their locker off uh, and, and, and pick it up. Uh, we will eventually have a, a storefront retail uh, type location where if you're not going to be staying in a uh, uh, if you're going to be staying in a vacation home that's maybe you know 30 miles from Disney or going to Vero Beach or you're going on the cruise line, you can stop and uh, and and pick your locker up and and drop it off and, at places that we that we don't deliver. You know, you you mentioned the cruise and I just came back from the cruise and it got me thinking. Say for example, I'm coming down for like a land sea vacation. I'm gonna spend a couple of days in Disney, then I'm gonna go on the cruise. Can I take my locker with me? And then, as long as I get it back to you, you know, in one piece. Well, the locker's yours, and you you can take it anywhere you want. Um, and let's say you're 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 coming to um, Orlando to spend a couple of days at Walt Disney World, and then you're going to go to Sarasota, or you're going to go to Miami, or you're going to go on the cruise. Uh, as long as you're coming back through Orlando to leave at the airport or to stay at a at a hotel here, you can take it really anywhere you want. Hmm. And there's a lot of people who've taken them on the cruise. Other folks, if they've got a lot of of uh, people in a room will uh, take a lot of stuff out of their locker, leave their locker at the resort they were staying at, uh, take their items to on the cruise, and then come back and restock them in their locker on their on their way uh, uh, out of town. All right. Now I'm coming down in a couple of weeks for Mouse Fest. Actually, are you going to be? Are you coming to Mouse Fest? Absolutely. We're we're that seems to be a very large target audience for us. <laughs> well, so we want to make a big splash at Mouse Fest. Well, my question is this. Is, is there any sort of a window of opportunity? Like, do I need to either A, have to sign up and order my locker X amount of days out from my trip, or if I'm already an, a locker owner, do I have to order it, you know, certain days out, or can I do it, you know, what, what's, what kind of you, leeway do Lou, I have? You can do it any time, and, and here's our thinking, is that you're on vacation, uh, I hate uh, trying to sign up for something or buy something and, and they say, oh, I'm sorry, you have to do it so many days in advance. We don't need any notice at all. And in fact, we've had several people who have signed up while they're already at the resort, and we're perfectly comfortable with that. Huh. Um, uh, so there's absolutely no notice needed for sign up. Of course, we like as much notice as possible because it helps us plan. Um, but um, there's, there's no notice to change your resort. There's no notice to sign up. Whenever it makes sense for you, just do it, and we'll take care of it. Excellent. Well, there, there's a lot more information uh, on ownerslocker.com. You can find out more about how the process works. You can actually see pictures of the locker, which I think is important that people go and see. I'll put a link up in this week's show notes to the website where people can find out more. Uh, also, if people have questions, I assume they can call you. There's an 800 number. There's also a forum there, which is a great way to read about other people's experience, as well as maybe ask some questions Um that you have, I, you've always been very, very accessible, and that was part of why I had a, a great comfort level. Like I said, you, you're based right there in Celebration, so you definitely get it. And again, that as us as Disney fans is something that we appreciate with somebody that we we deal with. Well, Brian and I both feel uh, very, very strongly that we have to be accessible. Uh, if you send us um, uh, an email using the contact section of the site. Uh, I can't imagine the time that we haven't been back with you in, in, in several hours because I just hate sending these things off to, you know, to contact us and you never ever hear from it. We always try to be there to answer the phone and don't want to have an answering machine there. Uh, we love talking. We love doing posts on the forums. We love answering emails. We just want to make people's vacations here more convenient and enjoyable and develop long-term relationships with folks. 
Well, I can tell you that having been to Walt Disney World probably more than 100 times, it really is rare for me that I find something that literally changes, in a good way, <laughs> the way I vacation and, and the way I travel. Um, I'm not sure how other people might use it, but I think the product and the service is invaluable, whether I travel alone, whether I travel with my family. So I think whether you go once a year or multiple times, whether you stay on property or if you're a DVC member, a vacation home, like we said, um, it, it's a great idea, and I, I personally give it my recommendation. I think everybody should try it out and see how it can really um, help out with their, with their vacations. And again, I'm really very, very impressed at your guys' level of service. Um, I think that's very personal, and having met you in the past a number of times, I see where it comes from. So, like I said, well, we as Disney really yeah, well, we, like I said, we as Disney fans, we have very high expectations when we visit. This can now be an integral part of it, and, and I think that you live up to those standards. So, John Vandermeter owner of ownerslocker.com. I really appreciate you coming on, kind of answering some of our questions for us. Lou, I'm really honored to be talking with you tonight. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, and I'll see you at MouseFest. All righty, look forward to it, Lou. We all know that it really did start with a mouse, and with last week marking Mickey's 79th birthday, what better time than now than to take yet another trip aboard the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine? This time, we're going to set the dial to 1988 for Mickey's 60th birthday and the introduction of Mickey's Birthday Land. And to get this segment and birthday party started by singing Happy Birthday, I'm going to welcome back Jeff Pepper. Thanks, Lou, and I'm not going to sing Nice Try. I'm going to keep on going until I finally get you to sing something on the show. But, uh, you know, Jeff, we, we talk about celebrating a birthday, and my daughter actually shares her birthday uh, with Mickey. And when, you, when, you, when people celebrate a birthday, they get clothes or toys or, you know, maybe an Xbox or whatnot. And if you're 60, you know, it's a pretty big birthday, so maybe get your dad a tie or something from, you know, Brookstone or something like that. But not Mickey. You know, Mickey gets something a little bit bigger and a little bit better because uh, it's now summer 1988 and, uh, you know, they're starting to prepare for Mickey's birthday party. So what do they decide to give him but a land of his own? Yeah, Mickey, uh, Mickey's 60th birthday, um, unlike recent years where it's been fairly low key when they celebrate anniversaries, uh, especially his 75th birthday kind of came and went with just a couple of pieces of merchandise and very little else. Um, in 1988, Mickey's birthday was 60th birthday was a huge, huge um, effort on Disney's part to celebrate it and do a, a huge, a year-long marketing push. And uh, there was merchandise, there were TV specials. Um, it was kind of right at the height of Michael Eisner's coming into the company and really revitalizing everything. And they just synergy took over and just really cross-promoted this. And again, Walt Disney World decided to jump on board. Yeah, you know, I mean, the only thing I could think of, relatively speaking, and it wasn't even close to what they did for this, was maybe Donald's 50th birthday uh, back in 1984. We all know the story that Char Charles Ridgway told about the ducks and whatnot, but it was nothing like this. I mean, he, you know, Donald got a parade and stuff like that, but this was something that wasn't just with the introduction of a new land, but it was this giant surprise party that really took over all the Magic Kingdom, and, and there were signs of this uh, going on everywhere from Frontierland through Main Street, kind of inviting you to this surprise party taking place in the new birthday land. 
and and funny you should mention Charles Ridgway because uh, Charles Ridgway was part of a team effort that was really responsible for um, for Mickey's Birthday Land. And interestingly enough, uh, this is one of the most um, interesting points about the creation of Mickey's Birthday Land is that it wasn't done by Walt Disney Imagineering. Imagineers had uh, nothing to do with the initial construction of this area, and the actual um, genesis of this is quite an interesting story of how it came about. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because Disney took, you know, some pretty prime real estate located between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland to carve out what was supposed to be initially just a very, very temporary birthday party. You know, it was going to be a year-long birthday party called Birthdayland, and that was going to be it, but they ended up constructing all these new buildings, and they also built the uh, addition to the railroad station. Yeah, it was it was truly a seat of your pants kind of kind of thing. If 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 anything went from zero to sixty in the development of attractions at Walt Disney World, this was kind of the poster child for that. Um, Ridgeway, Charles Ridgeway, you know, we've we've uh, both met him in person. He's a wonderful gentleman, and he was like I said, part of a task force, a group of like it was a marketing, a special marketing task force that was put out to cross promote different things like this and. As Mickey's uh, birthday was approaching in 88, they wanted to do something really big. And they had plans for a parade um, like they typically do for these like fairs, like you mentioned, Donald Duck's um, birthday. But they really wanted to kind of go the extra mile and do something really special. So they started coming up with various ideas about having a party, as you mentioned. And one of the initial ideas was to you know have a big kind of circus tent. And they had originally thought about putting it in the employee parking lot for uh, Main Street USA, and it would just be kind of uh, a tent, and people would be come come in, and it would be kind of just like an impromptu kind of show birthday party where you sing birth- happy birthday to Mickey Mouse, and that, w- that was one of the initial ideas, but they decided to take it even a step further, so they went to Michael Eisner and said, you know, we have this idea, we'd like to create kind of this birthday land, um, they had you know, drawn up some initial ideas for it and presented it to him, I guess, with the hope of passing it on to Imagineering. And what happened was, is that Imagineering at the time, this being 1988, they were less than a year out for opening MGM. So they were totally tied up. And they said, hey, yeah, this is a great idea. We'd love to do it. But how about we uh, take it, move it to the MGM studios after it opens, and, and pretty much we can do it sometime after 1989. And that was like, well, no, we want it's the birthday. It's 1988. <laughs> it defeats the purpose of... <laughs> and so basically, they, they, this, this was all marketing guys. They were, they were actually tapping into um, just merchandise artists, things like that, marketing artists, to kind of conceptualize this as opposed to the imagined years. They put enough of a package together, went back to Michael Eisner and said, and this was about February of 1988, and said, this is what we'd like to do, and we'd like to have it up and running by Mickey's birthday, which was in November. And <laughs> Michael Weiser said, okay, I'll give you $12 million, but you got you got to have it ready by May, so it's, it's set for the summer um, tourist season. And they went, oh, my God. <laughs> and... But subsequently, they pulled it off. They they, they created Mer- Mickey's Birthday Land in just a few short months and had it up and running in June. And I believe Nancy Reagan was there to help educate it when it opened. And it doesn't look, I mean, it doesn't look like they just kind of threw up, you know, like a, a county fair type tent. It looks like it was something that was there, you know, for a long, and meant to be, and meant to be permanent. I mean, they did things like they moved and they shortened the track for the Grand Prix Raceway, which is now the, the, the Tomorrowland Indy Speedway. So they did some pretty heavy lifting in order to kind of shoehorn this in. And you mentioned Nancy Reagan. 
um, being there for the grand opening on June 18th of 88. Do you remember who was there with her? Uh, to give you a sense of the time frame, who was there with Nancy Reagan to cut the yes. ribbon? Uh, Cindy Williams. <laughs> Come on, give me the Schlemiel Schlemazel song. Give me, give me a little something. <laughs> and again, I guess my memories of this period are so strong because this was one of my prime Disney periods. I mean, this is when it was a joy to be a fan in 1988. And I just remember getting the Disney magazine, and she was on the cover of the Disney magazine, and it was right. all about the opening of Birthday Night. So that's, I, I was able to get that one, trivia guy. <laughs> what, you know what I re- do remember, though, and I, and I kind of alluded to this briefly, was as soon as you entered the park, you know, they really wanted to let you know what was going on. I mean, this, this was a big deal. You saw things at the train station. You saw kind of cardboard cutouts all around the park showing all these different characters heading over to birthday land. Um, so they really, they were definitely getting the, the most bang for their $12 million buck. Well, there was almost this script you had to follow for this whole event that basically started when you entered the park. And that was, they didn't want you to walk to right. birthday land. They wanted you, in fact, I, I, to my knowledge, you know, when I, when I first visited, I didn't even know there was a normal entrance, the normal entrance there is to Toontown Fair now. I thought the only way you could get the birthday land was on the train. The train, right? You literally had to board the train, and it was called Mickey's Birthday Land Express, and complete with decorations, songs, singing, dancing, special narration, and you basically rode that to uh, the station that exists now, the depot there at Birthday Land. So it was it was sort of a scripted event that happened the minute you got you walked on the main street and more or less got up there and got on the train. Yeah, absolutely. And they, you know, I think part of it too was they wanted you to kind of follow a certain path through Birthday Land as you got off the train station. They wanted you to go first to Mickey's house and then to the Hollywood Theater and then kind of make your way around maybe to Grandma's Duck Farm. And we'll talk about all these different elements individually and then kind of maybe how they changed and some of the other things that were around um, to really give you a sense that you weren't just going to a party, but you were in you were in a town. I mean, it was meant to be this town, and oddly enough, it, it was a town not named for Mickey Mouse, but a very different character altogether. Yeah, it, this was one of the oddest points, but it was also one of the coolest points, is they took their inspiration um, not so much from Mickey Mouse, but from Donald Duck, and specifically the comic book world of Donald Duck. Um, you were in Duckburg. Uh, Mickey's birthday land was Duckburg, and Duckburg is... The city that um, is basically the home to Donald Duck in the comic books, largely the comic books that were written and created by Carl Barks, who's a Disney legend, um, very famously the Duck Man, who did all these wonderful, wonderful Donald Duck comic books. He created Uncle Scrooge, and he was very, very at his peak and prime during the 40s and 50s, and that's where they took their inspiration, oddly and interestingly enough, and it, it was funny is when you approached on the train, there was a very big billboard that said Duckburg honors its most famous citizen <laughs> and it's <laughs> Mickey Mouse and and d- there is Donald vandalizing the the billboard scratching painting through Mickey's name and writing his own name underneath and it, it there the irony there is that you know Donald was always Duckburg's most famous citizen and I guess it would be a, a kind of a standoff between him and Uncle Scrooge so it was interesting that they in fact described this to Mickey as this being his hometown but then they drew very very much um, as we'll talk about on so many of the design elements were very much inspired by much of what Carl Barks created in the comic books right and I'm sure you'll allude to the the obvious reference that was given to him in the little homage that was put on the sign but the 
you know, one part of it that I remember going to see were all the different facades. There were these kind of loose-sized facades. I'll get, I'll save everybody the joke because there were some. There were chi- stop it. There were these child-sized facades, and they were all themed to duck characters or Donald Duck. And they were everything from Donald Duck's candy store. There was the original Donald's boat, which was the SS Donald. There was the Duckburg News. I remember seeing. Uh, and, and everything, even the the mayor of Duckburg, and actually the founder of Duckburg was Cornelius Coote, and there was a statue of him right in the center of this place that was supposed to be celebrating Mickey Mouse. Yeah, we we, we talked about in one of our character segments. We talked about Cornelius Coote and how, in fact, now as he's presented, you know, he's the the host of Toontown Fair or whatever. Where as Cornelius Coote was an actual character from Carl Barks' comics. And also there was a large statue of Uncle Scrooge holding up his money bag. So it was very much designed as, as this town, as, as you said, the town of Duckburg. And the details that they put in, uh, you know, we, we put so much credit, we give so much credit to the Imagineers and you and I are kings of the details with our, all our Disney scene investigations and all the little things, you know, if, if they slap, you know, two numbers, you know, on a box somewhere, you and I are <laughs> you know like madly right. going through the, the internet, you know. <laughs> but this, this, you know, not coming from the Imagineers, this coming from sort of this task force of, of consortium of people, individuals to put this together, they did an incredible job with the details. Uh, there's a welcome to Duckburg sign that was posted in the town square, and it, it was very cleverly, it said population bill, bill, B-I-L-L in quotes, billions and still growing, and a town that, that's everything it's quacked up to be. And it even had little, as, as many, you know, when you go into towns and they have the Kiwanis little symbols and that on their welcome signs, this had, you know, similar little things about, you know, the the mystic order of the Mallard and the Sewing and Tattling Society and the Billionaire's Club founded by Uncle Scrooge. So it had some very, very clever details in that regard. But you know what's funny? Because the, the, the town and the whole land almost had a somewhat dual identity. You know, it had all these very clear references to Duckburg and Donald Duck. But when you went into Mickey's house and when you went into the tents, it was all about Mickey Mouse. Obviously, the first things you entered if you came off the train was uh, Mickey's house. And it's very different than what you see today, but it had a bedroom and it had uh, an office. It was not quite as fanciful as it is today where everything is kind of squashed and stretched and uh, everything's very colorful. It was very kind of subdued and looked as though it just was maybe a bachelor's house, although outside... Jeff, I know one of the things we were talking about that we both really enjoyed was that kind of little smushed red car that was parked in his driveway. Easily, Lou, one of my favorite design elements ever created for Walt Disney World. And sadly, it's been gone. We were we were kidding about it when we were talking about it and saying we wondered if it ended up in mouse surplus or if it's sitting in somebody's backyard somewhere. But it was just such a pure Toonie-type representation of Mickey's car that had been in, you know, in the cartoons and in the comic books and everything like that. But it, it just sat there in the driveway. Um, right now, as, as it's set up, you can walk through the garage and out, and it's become more of a walkway. But then it was kind of fenced off, and it literally sat there in the front um, of the house. And it was gorgeous, a beautiful red, just very stylized. And it had a Florida license plate on it that was a custom plate that said M-I-K and then M-I-N, McMinn. Yeah. It looks like it reminded me of something that almost would have come out of uh, Roger Rabbit, like that kind of yeah. a car. Exactly. So when you came out of Mickey's house, uh, you saw there was Pluto's doghouse, much like you see today. And then you would go into the three different tents. And again, 
it w- you forgot all about that you were in Duckburg because they showed Disney cartoons and there was Minnie's Kitchen and there was also another show with other Disney characters called Minnie's Surprise Party, which obviously was meant to be a surprise party for her good friend, uh, Mickey. And there was the Fab Five in there as well as Chip and Dale. Um, Goofy was in there as well as a, a, a live action cast member um, as well. And the song, do you remember the song that played in there? I remember the train song, but I'm 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 gonna get you to sing. I'm gonna get you to sing one of these days. <laughs> but the song was was obviously "We Love You, Mickey Mouse." That's right. Okay, now I remember. Yeah, and from there you left. Still not gonna sing it though. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. If anybody wants to call in and sing it on the voicemail, by all means, please feel free. But there was another room where there was another kind of uh, mini show, pardon the pun, where there was a performance on top of a birthday cake, and there was a lot of. Um, confetti and candles and, and things like that and then you can go and meet mickey over at the hollywood theater for kind of a meet and greeting for pictures yeah as kind of a reference point if um if you're standing looking at the big um what would it be called now lou the um the centerpiece the, the gift shop and everything where the meet and greets the are. judge's tent the judge's tent thank you i'm sorry um that was called the duck county courthouse and that as lou just said that was kind of where you entered to where where all these shows were as you're facing that entrance, uh, Mickey's house is on your right, much as it is today. But on your left-hand side, where Minnie's house now sits, that's where the Hollywood Theater was, where you had the meet and greets with Mickey, um, to kind of give everybody a bit of a reference point. Yeah, the one thing I remember, too, about uh, Mickey's house was there was a, a, a portrait of Walt Disney that he had um, in his office. He had a, a big desk, and behind his desk was a portrait of Walt Disney, which I thought was a nice touch. And something I found in my research that you, being the the animation fan, um, I thought you'd like, and you probably know better than I do, was on his refrigerator. I had seen a picture of two drawings that that he had posted up from his nephews, who were Morty and Ferdy. Um, were those guys ever in cartoons? Were they um, were they only in shorts? Were they only in in comic strips? Morty and Ferdy um, were largely comic book creations, although there was a silent, um, not silent, gosh, Jeff, um, early black and white Mickey, where there was basically um, two little miniature Mickeys that were basically have now kind of retro been identified as um, Morty and Ferdy. But Morty and Ferdy were primarily comic book uh, characters. They were really that kind of incarnation in that early short was the only time that there was anything kind of in a movie that closely resembled them. They, they never had a presence like Donald's nephews did. Gotcha. So across the street was, again, something very unique for the Magic Kingdom, and that was Grandma Duck's farm. And the thing that was unique about it was there were live animals there. And this was presented by, by Friskies, and the most famous of all these animals was Minnie Moo, who had Steve Barrett's favorite a big giant three circle hidden Mickey on her side. Yeah, she was. Um, she subsequently uh, went to live at the um, Fort Wilderness uh, Tri Circle Circle D. What am I saying? Circle D. Help me out, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own. I'm just leaving that. Yeah, she moved over to Fort Wilderness. I'm getting, I'm getting uh, Fort Wilderness <laughs> and Spin and Marty all jumbled up here together, and you know, children suck your brain cells right out of your body. Yeah, the uh, she moved over to the uh, the petting farm in Fort Wilderness and and uh, passed away and in the died. summer of 2001. <laughs> now there was a couple other things that we were talking about this Jeff in our research. We've we've been going through some maps and different guidebooks about some other things that. We're trying to place time-wise in 
Mickey's Birthday Land, and that includes Mickey's Playground, Mouser Sizing, and the Mouska Maze, the Topiary Mouska Maze. Yeah, the the early Birmingham guys, the uh, 1989, um, when Mickey's Birthday Land first appeared in there, they were referring to kind of a playground area that featured um, Minnie's Dollhouse and Mickey's Treehouse, and you and I were kind of struggling with our memories to kind of place them, and I remembered them talking about a Mouska Maze, and you know I was there in September of '88, and I just have no distinct memory of seeing the Mouska Maze. I don't. What? What? Were you right right in that same time frame when you visited? Or? I mean, I, we went so often that a lot of the trips, you know, in this time frame, kind of blended one into the other. So it'd be hard for me to identify without finding some old pictures, maybe from my parents. But I remember the big, giant Mickey Mouse hand waving statue that was on that side. And I, I, I know where the Mouska Maze would be on that side of the main thoroughfare, but I can't seem to place the time frame. And again, this is where, like I said last week, if anybody has any photos of things like the Mouska Maze or the early birthday land, I, I'd love it if you could share them with us, and I'd be happy to put them up in the show notes page. Yeah, actually, there's one other thing that was very prominent, especially in all the advertising material and all the promotional material that they rolled out, and that was a huge, huge inflated Mickey Mouse balloon that kind of stood behind the judges' tents, and it was kind of like the, it was set up to be the weenie of the area, and I, I never saw it in person, and uh, that was one of the questions when I met Charles Ridgway and we were talking about Birthday Land. I asked him, what happened to the balloon? And he said the balloon was a train wreck. Um, it was basically, it couldn't withstand the wind or the weather or whatever, and it just, it just totally kept deflating and they just had all kinds of problems with it so it was interesting because it rolled out in all the promotional material all the handouts there was this huge huge waving mickey mouse balloon that then subsequently never was there yeah well, i mean it was bright and colorful and obviously you know you knew as soon as you entered the park exactly where you were meant to go um to find birthday land but you know part of what I, I still am, am wrestling with, you know, we talk about how it was meant to be temporary, yet they did things like moved the Tomorrowland, um, the, the Speedways track a little bit. And the, the tents were something more than something that was thrown up very quickly. Although, on the other hand, the facades that were meant to kind of block the views of the tent, the, the little Duckburg facades, were very crude. They were very, you know, you, you can see very, very quickly thrown together. Uh, but, you know, not long after the, it opened, they realized, hey, we have a hit on our hands. We're not going to tear this down. We're going to keep this going. Yeah, it was huge. Um, one of the statistics I read was that literally 70% of all of the Magic Kingdom visitors participated or visited uh, Mickey's Birthday Land in that first year, which is pretty phenomenal for something that was essentially kind of a thrown together, last minute, let's just do something special and we'll, we'll, we'll knock it down a few months later. And it, it evolved into um, uh, Mickey Starland and then ultimately into Toontown Fair. And kind of a lot of refinements along the way to the point where it's almost this sort of like odd clone of you know what it was. I mean, so much of what was there that we're talking about, you can't really see, you know, other than the, the judges' tents and things like that. And, you know, Mickey's house kind of evolved and, you know, the added attractions came in. Um, but so much of what was there, I mean, Cornelius Coot, the statue of Cornelius Coot was kind of revised a little bit. And it's one of the very few kind of lasting legacies of what was there during Birthday Land. The interesting thing, too, is there really, for all intents and purposes, there wasn't a ton to actually do in Duckburg other than taking the train there. You walk through the Mickey's house and you, do, you see the show, do some meet and greets. And that was really about it other than just 
you know, if you were a geek and wanted to explore Duckburg and take pictures like we, we probably would have done. But it was so popular with kids and with families uh, that, that they realized that they had to kind of expand on it. And like you said, have what we eventually had today. It, well, one of the interesting things that I think kind of subtly came out of it and um, really now is almost taken for granted in all the various parks and even many of the resorts is sort of the playground type attraction like Pooh's Playful Spot um, really owes a lot to Mickey's Birthday Land because up until that point they really didn't have these sort of just kind of interactive little play areas for the for, for the preschooler set to kind of just you know blow off some steam and let the parents sit down on the bench for a while and that was one of the things when we were talking about these these kind of play areas that they created in in birthday land kind of set the precedent for um what came later in all these various incarnations even going so far to like you know the the honey i shrunk the uh, kids play area and disney mgm studios kind of were all rooted sort of these non-attraction attractions that were kind of rooted all the way back in birthday land. I, I was gonna say there really wasn't, I mean, obviously anything for the adult to do, and it was almost meant to be not so subtly a place for kids to just expend the energy. Even that second show that I was talking about, I remember having to stand through it. There wasn't a lot of places for you to sit and relax as if you're going to the Carousel of Progress and just want to kind of relax and get in air conditioning for a while. You were up and around, out and about, and the kids were kind of, it was designed so kids could almost be running through the streets, kind of exploring the town on their own. And, you know, we'd be remiss, you and I, if we didn't really, you know, go into some of the geeky details. So, you know, everybody just humor us for a minute while we, we talk about them. And one of the very fun things... Wait, we uh, weren't we just talking about the geeky details? <laughs> it's going to get even worse than that? <laughs> no, we're going to get into the really, really geeky details. The street signs. <laughs> the street signs were a lot of fun. Um, they had various names. Um, Hyperion Boulevard, clearly, I can relate to that one, folks. Um, Cornhusker Lane, Tailfeather Trail... Um, as you alluded to earlier, there was a very distinct homage to Carl Barks that also played, um, was also dedicated to Clarence Nash, who was the voice of Donald Duck in um, his like first like 30 or 40 years of, of um, stardom. Um, that was a street sign that said Barks and Nash. Um, there was like quack faster circle. So there was a lot of fun play on words. We mentioned um, the welcome to Duckbird sign with all its little details. And one thing that I got to mention, that's one of my very, very favorite things in the park right now. And again, it's, it's just a very subtle kind of a thing, but one of the coolest things that I took a lot of pictures of in birthday land was Mickey Mouse's mailbox. Now this isn't the mailbox that's there now in Toontown Fair that has kind of the sculpted Mickey head on it and Minnie has a matching mailbox the same way. This was your just traditional, you know, barn style mailbox painted yellow and it had Mickey Mouse, you know, lettering on the side. And the little metal flag that goes up um, was Mickey's arm and hand, gloved hand. And when they uh, took this down um, to revitalize the area into Toontown Fair, they replaced it with the newer one. Well, if you walk into Mickey's garage now, as you're walking through Mickey's garage, look up on the shelf and you will see up kind of squirreled away on one of the shelves is this original mailbox. It was as if Mickey, you know, decided he was going to change mailboxes and decided to just save the other one in his garage. As long as he was upgrading, you might as well have just... Yes. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, I, I love that. I just, I, I love when, when they do things like that, where they, they just kind of take something and just say, well, we're not going to kind of get rid of it. We're going to leave a little bit of a lasting legacy here. <laughs> You know only you and I are the, the only people on, on Earth that notice that, that subtle <laughs> change in the mailbox. <laughs> but 
But now we're going to send all these people scurrying to look for it the next time they're there. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing. Even back then, you know, with the street signs, and even now as it's kind of gone through uh, the Genesis when it became Starland and now Birthday Land, there are a lot of fun details if you want to go and look and explore. And we could almost do a full DSI of Mickey's Toontown Fair. Maybe that's something we'll do in the future. But I guess we should just talk briefly, Jeff, about what happened when Birthday Land went away, what it became and what it led to now. We won't really talk about Toontown too much, but we should maybe mention that it, it did eventually... Birthday Land went away when the birthday celebration was over, but in uh, May of 1990, 1990, that's when it turned into Mickey's Starland. Yeah, this and it's, it's important to, to note that so much of what... You know, when we talk about synergy and such, um, this was kind of happening again. This is, you know, the Michael Eisner era of... You know, Disney kind of coming back into the fold in so many areas. And one of the big areas where they were expanding right at this very time was television and specifically children's television. And one of the things that Starland then ultimately became was a showcase for Disney's television stars that were the Gummy Bears, um, DuckTales, um, Chippendales Rescue Rangers. Um, Tailspin. Tailspin, yeah. I mean, these were all very, very big. Uh, The Disney Afternoon basically came into being in the early 90s. And this became a very distinct showcase when it was Starland for those properties. And they very much cross-promoted them there in in the various shows they put on that kind of replaced the birthday shows. Right. Well, the the surprise party show, you know, made made no apology about becoming Mickey's magical TV world that really showcased all those shows that you were talking about. And also it involved... um Scrooge McDuck. He was like in a, in a bank vault or something like that. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I think they got him locked in a vault or something crazy. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it definitely had the 80s feel to it with the name of Starland and, and the, the changes in the facades. But it very clearly became a much more permanent looking land than it had been before. And the irony here then is that all of this success did begat a very, very distinct incarnation of Toontown, unfortunately, it was in Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) They got it first. (laughs) Um, You know, so much of this, it it also corresponded with the success of, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and this whole concept of Toontown that, you know, know, kind of emerged out of Roger Rabbit. But I think all combined, you know, the success led Disneyland to say, hey, let's, let's build this very elaborate land behind Fantasyland and Disneyland. And so they did that. And then Ultimately, there, you know, Disney World was kind of in the position of, well, hey, <laughs> what about get, us? Get us big, we were here first. Yeah, what about us? And so, so then that they they didn't kind of do the dramatic kind of very distinct Toontown that they did for Disneyland, but they sort of did the Toontown Fair that allowed them to still retain like the big judges tents and such, and kind of do that kind of country fair theme. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned um, Roger Rabbit, and I think it kind of begs the question, well, you know, with Roger Rabbit being so successful and with Disney anticipating the success of Roger Rabbit, I mean, if you remember, Jeff, he was very, very prevalent in the parks around this time. I mean, Roger Rabbit was a walk-around character that walked side-by-side with Mickey Mouse. I mean, they were really trying to bring this character in. So you say, well, why not make Toontown the Roger Rabbit Toontown? And I think that's just not the direction that they wanted to go. I think the Roger Rabbit Toontown was just too too dark, too dirty, too adult, and they really were trying to make something much more whimsical, much more fanciful for the for the much younger set. And again, it offered them a great opportunity to really bring in the Disney afternoon shows uh, when it became Starland. 
And, 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 and actually, too, at the same time, as we've talked about here on prior shows, Roger Rabbit, you know, because he was a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more adult, um, sort of crossing over more to that way, he his natural home became uh, the Disney MGM Studios. And we, we had talked about how he had had such a strong presence there when that opened in 1989 and how at the same time, probably much of the decision making was also in anticipation of what was going to be the Roger Rabbit's Hollywood area in Disney MGM that unfortunately never came to fruition. And like you said, that sort of left room for the Mickey's Toontown theme to be you know, taking place in uh, the Magic Kingdom. So coming full circle and looking back at the original Birthday Land and, and Toontown today, what do you think one versus the other? Did you, did you like what they were trying to do with Birthday Land and, and Starland, Or do you like Toontown better kind of in its current state? And I think Toontown. I know the answer. Yeah. Yeah, to, to, it, it, and I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll be, a, I'll give you a politician's answer. Um, I love them both for very different reasons. And um, Birthday Land, I think, was right. Like I had mentioned, it was, it was right at the start where I became a real, real faithful Disney park goer. Um, it's when I started going to to Disney multiple times a year. And the really neat thing about Birthday Land was. I think it was one of the places where I, I basically got my eye for detail. Um, when you walked into Birthday Land, as you, I think you kind of were, were talking about a little bit, is it was so full of eye candy. Um, there was just so much to take in. It was colorful. There were so many little details. Um, it just I think it gave me an appreciation for that level of detail that then now, all these years later, as everybody knows what a nerd I am about this kind of stuff, I kind of think a lot of my, you know, degree of sentimentality towards this kind of details and that the imagineering side of it really started back then today it has it has evolved into toontown fair and as you just said we can do an entire segment on toontown fair and i can't wait till we do it because toontown fair is just birthday land times 10 for the amount of just details and clever homages to old cartoons just so much there and it is just eye candy eye candy everywhere i mean you I, I spend sometimes 45 minutes to an hour just covering, you know, walking through Mickey and Minnie's houses just to take in all the details all the time. So, you know, Donald's house or Donald's boat, um, Mickey's barnstorm or the queue lines are just phenomenal. And I just it's just a fun, fun place that is just rooted in the classic animation of the studio. Yeah, you see, it really gave the Imagineers the opportunity to have a lot of fun with what they were doing, with putting in the details and with putting in some of these uh, little kind of sight gags and, and a couple of the places you mentioned, like Minnie's Kitchen and uh, Mickey's Kitchen and the the queue for the Barnstormer. There, there's so much there, and I think we should go through it because there are just so many wonderful sight gags. But like we always say, these are the kind of things that you should go through. Don't just blow through these houses. Take your time and really explore uh, because that's what the, the, where the real magic of this land comes through, at least for an adult. You know, for a kid, it's going to see Mickey and Minnie and kind of get, getting a chance to walk through his house. But for us, it's being able to really see some of those finer details. So that, that basically wraps up our uh, not-so-brief look at Mickey's birthday land and kind of how it evolved to what it is today. Um, I think it's come a long way through the years. It's, to a certain degree, a kind of far cry from that very temporary land that was meant to be when it first opened. Um, and again, every time I hear temporary land, I think of Camp Mini Mickey, but that's another story for another day. So, uh, Jeff, like we said, we're going to really take some time, explore Toontown in a lot more detail, but it was fun kind of going back. And like I said, if anybody has any photos that they want to share of Mickey's birthday land, it doesn't seem to be a whole lot out there. We'd love for you to share those with us. 
Thanks, Lou. It's always a pleasure doing these Wayback Machines. And I, I was able to go back to, a, as I told you before, a year that I particularly liked, 1988. Thank you all for sending in your emails to the show. I really appreciate your comments, your questions, and your feedback. Like I said, I am going to get to every one of them, so please be patient. But let's get right into this week's emails. The first says, Dear Lou, I love the podcasts and have been listening to them from here in the UK since they started. I wonder if you could help, as I know you're an expert regarding the Disney dining plan. My husband and I are going to Disney for the first time and staying at the Caribbean Beach Resort in April. I understand the dining plan includes per day a counter service, table service, and a snack. Now my question is, can I use my counter service entitlement for each day to use for a breakfast service instead of using it for lunch each day? I want to experience the table service restaurants each evening and would prefer to have breakfast, snack, and dinner each day as I don't think I can fit in lunch as well. Or do you think it's better to skip breakfast, get an early lunch in the parks, and then have some dinner? I'm going to hit that question first. What I like to do oftentimes is get to the parks early, and unless I'm having a character breakfast or just want to really take a very slow day, I'll often just grab something quick like a cinnamon roll, a cup of coffee. You can get these in the parks. You can get them at resorts um, and then kind of get on your way. Then I like to have a nice lunch and a really nice dinner if I can either in or out of the parks. You then go on to say, what time do you think is best to try and get good service in the restaurants? I was possibly thinking about 7, 7.30 p.m., Is it too busy then? Many thanks. Keep up the excellent radio show. Can't wait to get Disney and your podcast each week. Make me feel as if the Disney magic is getting closer. And that's from Paula Casey. Yes, and I can't wait to go to Casey's and get my photo taken outside. Well, Paula, thank you. And as far as the dining times, 7, 7.30 is kind of right on the outside cusp of when dinner is really busy. And I'd probably say normally between 6 and 7 p.m. If you can't get a dining reservation for where you're looking to go. And obviously at that point, walk-ups might be an impossibility. Try and be a little bit more flexible about maybe going earlier or later to give you a little bit more uh, in the way of options as to what may be open, especially if there's certain restaurants that you want to go to. So for example, if you're going and you're not being able to book 180 days out for Le Cellier at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, Try and see if you can go maybe a little bit later on in the evening. Have a bigger lunch. Use those dining service credits for a sit-down meal for lunch. Like you said, do a snack for breakfast, a good lunch, have a late dinner, and you'll be able to enjoy a little bit more variety possibly as far as restaurants are concerned. Next email says, Lou, I'm a new listener to your WDW radio podcast, and I just love the show. It's so entertaining and informative, and you have great guests. I have a quick question. In the Walt Disney World trivia book, you mentioned that in Epcot, there's a recording of a distressed bird being played to discourage birds from making a home there. Do you know if, such, if there is such a recording being played anywhere else in the Magic Kingdom? Last February, we were having a snack in Fantasyland and were amazed by all the dive-bombing seagulls who were after the food of nearby guests. It was almost humorous if it wasn't so scary, watching kids screaming and adults ducking and bobbing from the crazy birds. And inevitably, a fry or two would fall from a dodging parent carrying trays of food, and the birds would become hysterical. You could almost hear them screaming, swarm, swarm, swarm. 
If there is no recording playing in the Magic Kingdom, why not? Thanks much, keep up the great work, and that's Tracy from Loveland, Colorado. Tracy, you're right. There are the sounds in playing in Epcot. You can hear it in Future World uh, near the fountain area of a bird in distress, and that is to keep birds from nesting and, like you said, dive bombing and swarming on guests. Now, I don't know why they don't play in the Magic Kingdom. I've never actually heard of them, nor do I know that they actually exist there. Uh, I, my personal experience, I've never really seemed to have any sort of issue about the birds, except possibly by Casey's Corner. There are birds by the, uh, the flower beds there, but they're not really dive bombs. They're more like submarine birds that kind of just walk around and, and pick at your feet from what falls to the ground. And the birds over by, uh, across from the turkey leg stand in Frontierland, a lot of the, the birds kind of hang out by there as, as guests either drop pieces of their turkey leg or decide to feed what are probably the best fed wild birds uh, anywhere. So... I'll try and see if I can find that definitely for you. But if you want to really go and, and experience what Lou experiences and get some of those odd looks, go to the Magic Kingdom, go to guest services and, and ask them why the sounds of birds of in distress aren't playing in the background and uh, see what kind of looks you get. And again, welcome to my world. Next email says, Lou, I just discovered your podcast this summer and I'm really in, am enjoying planning my next trip to Disney World, as well as sharing some nostalgic memories from my first trip in 1973. I especially love listening to you cover the details of the cues, etc. Following the example of Pollyanna's Glad Game, if I have to stand in a long line, at least I can be glad that the Imagineers put in plenty of hidden Mickeys and other clever sight jokes to amuse me while I wait. We took my three-year-old son for the first time last year. His favorite rides were Splash Mountain and the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. In fact, he was spending so much time watching videos of these rides on Google that I couldn't get my work done, so we bought the ride videos that you talk about on your site. We got both Disneyland and Disney World. Watching these, I noticed some real differences in the storylines of some of the rides that are at both parks. I can understand the rides differing because they have different construction constraints at each site, but why alter the story? For example, at Disney World, Pooh has a hero party following the movie, but at Disneyland, it was a birthday party which isn't in the movie at all. Disney World also did a better job following the movie, yes, I'm old enough to remember, on Splash Mountain than Disneyland's. It seems as though if a ride is popular enough to warrant duplicating it at another park, that they would want to keep it as similar as possible, if only to save money on recording the audio. Is Disney making the differences to try and entice the true Disney fans to visit both parks and see the differences, or if they're going into both anyway to help them not be bored with a duplicate? Just curious, Beth and Indy. Beth, you're correct in that sometimes differences in the attractions are due to size constraints, uh, space restrictions, etc. Much like Walt Disney World's Pirates of the Caribbean being much shorter than Disneyland's and missing scenes because of the size of the building and the layout of the Magic Kingdom. Other times, yeah, the story is probably changed slightly to give a little bit of a different experience as many guests do visit both parks. So, for example, the Haunted Mansion. This is actually a very good example. The Haunted Mansion is in four theme parks worldwide. And the differences inside to the story are very subtle. However, outside, they're very pronounced because in each of the different parks worldwide, they're in a different land. So, for example, we have the Haunted Mansion in Liberty Square, so it has a certain look and a certain story attached to it. While in Disneyland and in Tokyo the Haunted Mansion might be in Fantasyland or Frontierland, for example. So it, it must look different and obviously follow a very different storyline. So this has actually been something that's been going on for a long time. If you remember when we talked about Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, the attractions on both coasts were somewhat different. Now, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride 
in Walt Disney World is obviously long gone. It does still exist in Disneyland, but the tracks and the layouts and some of the scenes were different between the two shows. So it is something that Disney has done for a long time. And I think it's a good thing. So you, if you do decide to go and visit, for example, if you're a Walt Disney World fan, you decide to go and visit Disneyland, you're not going to get the exact same experience when you go and say, well, I don't need to go and visit Mr. Toad or the Haunted Mansion because I've seen this already. You haven't because there are some slight differences. And if you're a big fan, it's a lot of fun trying to pick out what some of those subtle differences might be. Next email says, Lou, love the show. I had a question about the Magical Gatherings Grand Gatherings. Everything I've read so far about the Safari Celebration Dinner is very vague about what happens in the Safari. Do you know if it's like the Sunrise Safari where they just take their time and really look at the animals? Or is it just a regular ride through the Safari? My family is going next December and we're trying to decide which Grand Gathering to go to. What would you recommend for six adults and kids under 10? Thanks, Amy. Amy, this is something that we talked about with Pam Forrester from The Magic for Less Travel a few weeks ago. I'll put a link up to it in the show notes. Uh, She's had a chance to experience the Grand Gathering Safari, and she and everybody else that I've talked to does nothing but rave about this experience. It is not like a normal safari. You do get a private guide. It does go very slow. It does stop to allow you to take pictures and allows your guide to really go in depth as to what you are seeing there. It is definitely considered to be a must-do if you can do the Grand Gathering. Again, it's something that's highly recommended. If you do decide to do it, I'd love to hear about your personal first-hand experience and what you thought, if it was worth it, and how different it was than, say, a normal Kilimanjaro safari ride. Next email says, Lou, I'm a new listener to your show and find it very informative. Last year, I saw a special on TV about the different things at the resorts, like the carousel, gingerbread house, trains, etc. Can you tell me how to get from one resort to the other to see all the holiday specials and where they are? Thank you, Sheila. Sheila, what I would probably do, especially if you don't have a car, and I'm going to assume that you don't by virtue of your question, is Look at the, at the resorts in two distinct areas. First would be the monorail resorts, the contemporary Grand Floridian and Polynesian. The, the Grand Floridian is where you're going to be able to see the beautiful gingerbread house as well as buy uh, gingerbread cookies, gingerbread houses, snacks, things like that. The decorations in those three resorts are absolutely beautiful. They're very unique, themed very, very well to each of the resorts, um, and obviously very easy to get to. You can go to the Transportation and Ticket Center, hop on the monorail, and visit all the resorts that way. The other resorts I'd definitely go see are the ones over by Epcot, and that would be the Boardwalk and the Yacht and Beach Club. The Boardwalk is where you're going to find the carousel. You're also going to find some very unique things in the Yacht and Beach Club as well. You can either uh, walk through Epcot, walk through the International Gateway, and then walk around the promenade around Crescent Lake. You can also, if you want to take a bus maybe to one of those resorts, you can do that as well. What I might recommend doing is if you spend a day in, in Epcot, go to Future World in the morning, Go to World Showcase in the afternoon, spend some time walking around the promenade, enjoying all the different um, holiday decorations that those resorts have to offer. You can come back, eat dinner in World Showcase, and then leave the way you came from the entrance to Future World. I wouldn't necessarily uh, suggest, if you don't have a car, going to visit all the other resorts. However, if you can or if you really are interested in seeing these, the only other one that I would suggest that is not a monorail line or one of the Epcot resorts is definitely to head on over to Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. You want to talk about big, beautiful, very, very unique holiday decorations. That would be the exception uh, to the rule there. And you also might want to go over 
to Wilderness Lodge and or Fort Wilderness because you get a very different type of theming right there. I think the Wilderness Lodge is very beautiful. We've talked about it at length before, how warm and cozy and inviting it is. And around the holidays, they do a wonderful job of decorating the lobby as well. But again, all those three resorts are going to take a special trip either by car or by bus. And if that's what you want to do, it is gonna, you do need to make sure you afford yourself a little bit of extra time. Next question says, Hey Lou, my son is going to be turning four on our family's next trip to Walt Disney World the last week of January 2008. Too bad we'll just miss you in the half marathon. He's absolutely in love with trains from Thomas the Tank Engine to model railroads to the real thing. We're looking forward to riding the monorail and the Walt Disney World Railroad at the Magic Kingdom. Unfortunately, my son isn't old enough to go on the Magic Behind Our Stream Trains tour and he's probably not ready for Big Thunder Mountain. But do you know of any other train-related experiences I can treat him to during our visit? Yes, and I'm going to answer this part of your question right now. First thing I would go do is maybe go check out the Carrollwood Pacific Room over at Disney's Wilderness Lodge. We used to, it used to be called the Iron Spike Room. This is where you can see um, real real trains that were on Walt's own backyard railroad, the Carrollwood Pacific. There's lots of train pictures there, lots of train memorabilia if you want to take a special trip over there. I also suggest going and spending a lot of time over at the Walt Disney World Railroad Station at the Magic Kingdom. There's a lot of great props and photos and maps and information there. You can really spend a lot of time exploring both the top and bottom levels. I'm going to throw in a shameless plug for the audio guide CD that I just came out with here. I do spend a lot of time talking about the train station as well as things that you can find and see in there. Like I said, a lot of great details and a lot of great information. Um, The other thing I would do while you're there is when you're on the train or while you're waiting for the train or when the train comes in, go and talk to the conductor. Bring your son over, introduce him to the conductor when it comes in. I I will guarantee you that he or she will be very happy to show your son around the trains, talk to him a little bit more about them. Uh, They're they're very, very friendly and, of course, very knowledgeable uh, about the, the Walt Disney World Railroad. Now, you also ask a few other questions about trains, like, will the outdoor model train display at Epcot's Germany Pavilion be open in January? Yes, that is open all year round, unless there's a rare occasion where it is being refurbished, although I've never seen that happen. Is the general public able to catch a glimpse of things like a steam engine being refilled or a monorail track being switched? That's yes to both. You can often see the trains being refilled. I think the best place to catch that is if you go over to the Mickey's Toontown Fair train station, You can sometimes uh, see them filling it with water, things like that. As far as the switching of the monorail track, if you take the monorail between the Magic Kingdom and the Contemporary, that's where the switching takes place. If it's going to go either back to the roundhouse or if it's going to switch lines, you kind of have to catch it. Or if you're at a monorail station, ask one of the um, people on the platform when that might take place. You can either watch it from the monorail Or if you take the path in between the Magic Kingdom and the Contemporary Resort, you can see where the switching takes place. Again, if you time it just right, you might actually see a monorail being switched uh, on its way back to the roundhouse. You also ask, is it still possible to wait in line for a ride in the front of the monorail? Yes, absolutely. Definitely something you should do. And when you do it, make sure you tell them that it's your son's birthday. Make sure you tell them that you want to see if they'll give you a monorail co-pilot card. Also something else you can do, ask them for... Uh, transportation cards. There's a series of 18 cards that you can collect. They're free from the monorail, the trains, the buses, and the watercraft. And like I said, it's a series. So when you go and uh, if you're at any of the stations, ask either one of the conductors, ask one of the captains of the boat for the monorail card or for the, uh, the transportation card, I'm sorry, and see if you can collect all 18. Finally, are there any stores at Walt Disney World that have a wide selection of various toy trains and monorails for sale? 
first thing that comes to mind is Once Upon a Toy in Downtown Disney. They have a very, very wide selection of monorails as well as a replica of the Walt Disney World uh, railroad train. There's all kinds of uh, pieces and sets that you can get for the monorail. You can get a Spaceship Earth. You can get a Magic Kingdom train station. Um, I have things like the Polynesian and the Grand Floridian and the Contemporary, something we put out every year. A lot of fun. Again, if your son and you are big train fans, um, those are great kind of things to take home and sort of recreate some of the scenes as well. So that's going to do it for this week's email section. Like I said, I have many more of your emails to get to, but please keep them coming. You can send them to Lou, that's L-O-U, at WDWRadio.com. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank you for tuning in again this week, and I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks, as always, to Jeff, as well as John Van Meter from OwnersLocker.com for their help on this week's show. For more information, visit our show notes page or go to OwnersLocker.com. Don't forget that the first of my audio guides to Walt Disney World is now available at DisneyWorldTrivia.com slash guide. I want to thank everybody who's ordered and already sent me feedback about it. The CD is a first in a series that's going to cover all the lands of the Magic Kingdom, as well as the rest of the Walt Disney World Resort. The first one is Main Street, USA, and it's just under 80 minutes long as I narrate your way around Town Square, through every shop, and past every window, pointing out details along your journey. And along the way, I'm going to hopefully teach you about some of the incredible details and secrets and the history of each land, and discover the fascinating bits of trivia contained therein. For those guests who are visually impaired, it's a great way to experience the parks at home or take it with you to experience while you're there. You can learn more and read some reviews on the DisneyWorldTrivia.com website. The CD is just $9.99 and is shipping now, so visit the show notes page for a link to the order form and information page. Don't forget there's also some other specials going on, including ones from our friends over at Orlando Fun Tickets, where they have a special where if you buy a three-day Magic Airway ticket with Park Hopper, they're going to give you a free upgrade to a five-day Magic Airway ticket, also with the Park Hopper option. You can learn more or buy tickets online by visiting the special offer section of their website. Uh, I have a special link in this week's show notes that will take you right over to Orlando Fun Tickets. They are my recommended ticket provider, and you can buy with confidence because, remember, they are an authorized and official full-service ticket and vacation provider from Walt Disney World with the lowest prices on discount Disney tickets. Speaking of specials, the Magic for Less Travel also has a number of specials going on right now where you can get lots of exclusive freebies in addition to their already exceptional free service. Visit our show notes page for more information and a link to themagicforlesstravel.com. On the next few shows, I have another hidden treasure slash best of the best segment with another listener, as well as more history and trivia, great vacation planning tips and interviews with some very special guests. So be sure and stay tuned. I still need your help. As I mentioned last week, I am also I'm still looking for photos from Walt Disney World, specifically pictures from the 70s, 80s and 90s, everything from extinct attractions to old stores restaurants, buildings, shows, just about anything from in and around the parks. I'd love for you to send those over to me. They can be from the exteriors. They can be from the interiors. If you're not sure if it, where it might be from, that's okay. Send it over as well. You know I'm a geek. You know what I'm looking for probably. So you can email those to lou at disneyworldtrivia.com. And again, I, can, I appreciate any help you guys can provide. Please keep on emailing the show, lou at wdwradio.com, and call in your voicemails, questions, comments, anything. Call in from the parks even. 
206-202-4WDW. That's 206-202-4939. Stay tuned to the end of the show this week as I play a few more that came in earlier. And don't forget, you can also join us to talk about the show over at our fun and very friendly forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Again, you'll find a link to that in the show notes. And if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Talk about it on other online communities. Thanks again to my guests. And thanks, as always, to you for tuning in again this week. I was accused last week of not having a good see ya. So until next week, see ya! Hi, this is Chris reporting from Mickey's Toontown Fair Live at the Magic Kingdom during the Extra Extra Magic Hours, where the Magic Kingdom is open till 3 a.m. It appears the Extra Extra Magic Hours are working quite well as many guests are leaving that are normally scheduled to be in the park with the heavy holiday traffic that is now entering the park. Uh, It's actually uh, quite nice to be here during this time. A little uh, hidden treasure for people who are at the Animal Kingdom. If you leave the Animal Kingdom when the park closes and go to the Animal Kingdom Lodge, Make your way down to the pool level and take the walkway around there until you see a sign that says Night Vision. If you follow the sign, it will lead to a trail where you can actually see the animals grazing after dark, where a cast member will be more than happy to give you a night scope where you can observe the animals in their natural habitat. Aloha, Lou. This is Joel from Meandering Mouse Club TV. I just got done listening to your show, and uh, you sitting there and talking about the kitchen cabaret brought back a lot of memories uh, that was actually one of the shows that i used to work at back when i was uh uh cast member the summer after i worked on the college program and you know some additional information um for you on that is that uh the entrance area you guys talked about was seen for a uh, nighttime it was kind of uh, again cabaret so it was that uh, that night vibe with the heavy art deco and our costumes, we were dressed up like ushers from the 20s or 30s, and I'll never forget that costume. God, it was a uh, a tough costume to deal with because the whole costume was double-knit polyester, and you had the double-knit polyester pants, you had the polyester shirt, the double-knit polyester um, uh, blazer, in addition to having a cap on and a vest, and a bow tie. And so one of the things about that is that if you started sweating at all, you were going to be wet the rest of the day because it was just so hot in there. Um, one of the challenges I had with the costume is a lot of times I would go to wardrobe to pick it up and the lapels, I'd have one that was this little itty-bitty lapel and then I'd have the other side, which was this huge thing. And a lot of times I'd have to spend the extra time with the ladies there in wardrobe and ask them if they could go back and repress it and get my lapels even because otherwise they just, you know, they looked awful. Uh, some of my memories of the show were having a hard time with the entrance area because they had a magnetic rope when we hit our limit and uh, people would purposely drop the rope and come in and what I would do is I would have a certain way of, of corralling the people in. I could see exactly where the line was that uh, I had been able to create and if people came in beyond that, I would go over and tell them all I need to ask you to leave because they're full and the kind of resistance I would get because they all wanted to, to pack it in. But it was a short show. It was only a 13-minute show. Uh, but they still, that, that challenge of trying to, to control how many people were in there. And Bonnie, we did call her our figure with a figure. And a lot of people didn't really notice this, but on the as you were going in, they had some posters 
of Bonnie, and she actually showed a lot of cleavage in the posters, and originally in the show, too, she showed a lot of cleavage. And after a few complaints, they they covered her up uh, in the show. Uh, one time uh, when I was doing the show, we had a problem because Bonnie, uh, she raised her hand and she kind of flicked her wrist and she leaked fluid uh, out into the audience area and, you know, had to have, had to have the show go one-on-one to do that. And the characters in the show, you mentioned Mr. Dairy Goods. Well, he showed up on eBay uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was weird to see a, a full animatronic. Now, we didn't have his uh, outer coating, but it was definitely him with the eyes and in the eyebrows, because those also moved up and down. Uh, for the sisters, one of the neat things about them is if you actually looked at the containers they were in, you could see it was a bag of rice, and you had the box and then the canister, you know, that uh, round canister that you usually get oats in, you think of it that way. And then uh, the bakery boy, he showed up in two places during the show, uh, which he was the only animatronic that did that. Uh, one of the the, the piece, uh, pieces of the show that was kind of neat for me was when they would drop down in that kitchen window uh, that was of the whole set would have the uniqueness of, of having a sunrise uh, later on in the show at the end it uh, changed there but also they would have a slideshow when Ham and Eggs came down. They would uh, show uh, little slides to go along with their vaudeville act. And a lot of people didn't realize this too, but the ham, he was a Virginia ham. You could tell by uh, his dress and, and mannerisms that he was a, a, a Virginia ham in there. And the one item, you talk about the veggie veggie fruit fruit, but it was always the Olay um, in the cha-cha-cha that got the people, especially when Broccoli would raise up and flip his glasses up as he did the cha-cha-cha. The kids always loved that one. And for me, the, the real neat part of the show was the fiber optic fireworks because that was the first time really I had ever seen those uh, was in there. I had not seen it over in the, the Mexican pavilion. My first exposure was the fireworks there at Kitchen Cabaret, and I thought that was really cool. The holidays are a time to gather close with your family and friends and celebrate. And where better to celebrate than at the Walt Disney World Resort at MouseFest 2007, where the All About the Mouse Disney Podcast proudly presents The Rockin' Mouse Meet. Join us Friday, December 7th at 6 p.m. at the Rockin' Roller Coaster at the Disney Hollywood Studios to witness Jonathan Dichter's first ride on the Rockin' Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith. And then join the rest of the All About the Mouseketeers at Beaches and Cream on Saturday, December 8th at 11 a.m. at the Beach Club at the Walt Disney World Resort. It's our kitchen sink meet. Join us for magic, mayhem, fun and prizes with special guest art from the Beach Club. Be a part of the first ever live All About the Mouseketeer roll call only at MouseFest. Find out more information at mousefest.org or allaboutthemouse.com.